Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Adia Harvey Wingfield, Ph.D., Her book is Gray Areas. She's the author of Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It. Despite today's multi-billion dollar diversity industry, workplace inequality is still very real. While explicit discrimination no longer occurs and organizations make internal and public pledges to honor and achieve diversity, employees of color, particularly black workers, remain less likely to be hired, stall out at middle levels, and rarely progress to senior leadership positions. Why? According to award-winning sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield, the reason is to be found in what she calls gray areas. She provides actionable solutions for creating a truly equitable future, including what you can do, checklists geared toward management, HR, and colleagues. She is the Mary Tileson Hemingway Hemingway, Professor of Arts and Sciences and Vice Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity at Washington University in St. Louis. She also writes regularly for mainstream outlets like Slate, the Atlantic, and Vox. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on again. Adia. Yes, thank you for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. Great to have you. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, I guess, I don't know, has the, probably you were on last year, I can't remember exactly when, but have we made any progress in terms of what I just said in the intro intro, uh, during these past few months, I should say, or are we still stuck and really, well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think what I, what I try to show in gray areas is more information about the types of issues that we discussed before and the types of challenges that are plaguing a lot of our contemporary workplaces. I think we saw a lot of attention in 2020 to issues of systemic racism and many companies saying that they were opposed to it and committing lots of money to eradicating it in their various industries. But we've also seen since then a lot of pushback and a lot of retreat from many of these same companies. So what I hope is that gray areas will highlight a lot of the challenges that black workers encounter in these spaces and hopefully help people who are interested in trying to work for change to have some ideas for how they can do that. So how is how is the book Gray Areas going to do that? Like you say, there's been a lot of pushback and not so much stuff going forward. So how do you accomplish that? in gray areas in the book? Yeah, so it's twofold. The one thing that I hope the book will accomplish is to highlight for readers who may be unfamiliar the way that black workers experience challenges through these gray areas in their workplace. And so when I talk about gray areas, I'm referring to the parts of work that are not necessarily the formal tasks that we complete as part of our jobs, but the more ambiguous social parts of work, the social dynamics, the cultural aspects, the relational parts of how we work and how we find work. And I've found that that's really more where we see racial inequalities perpetuated or how we see racial inequalities perpetuated in our workforces. So my hope is that the book will highlight those issues, but that it will also uh, give readers some ideas for things that they can do differently. Let's talk about, you mentioned the first one was social, how, uh, the impact that social issues have on on black workers, uh, not being able to get ahead really in these corporations and these companies. So social, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah. So when I talk about that, I'm thinking about the ways in which the social networks and connections that people have can play a role in shaping or minimizing their access to various jobs. 
So we know, for example, that most people find work through uh, some sort of connection or a network that they already have. The majority of workers find work that way today in our current knowledge-driven economy. But we also know that our relationships and networks tend to be pretty racially segregated, just like our neighborhoods, our schools, our social groups, and so forth. So when most people find work through their networks, but our networks are not racially diverse, that means that black workers are already at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to moving into jobs in the first place. And so I talk about that in the book in a number of areas. One story that I include is Kevin, a worker who's in the nonprofit space, who talked a lot about not having a networks of people that would help him find a job, but being particularly helped by black women, but not necessarily his white colleagues. So I, as you're just uh, describing that kind of a situation, I'm thinking that's it also uh, women it, are in that position too. I think just male, female, uh, you know, the, the male, the actually the white males, maybe I guess we have to say, right. They have a whole network that excludes black workers, excludes women, uh, and uh, it sort of kind of works the same way, doesn't it? Does it? Yeah, I think that's particularly true if we're talking about women who are trying to move into jobs that tend to be more male-dominated. So we might think, for example, of engineering or STEM fields or tech jobs for certain. I think that's where we would be likely to see women dealing with these challenges of their networks not necessarily being so useful for bringing them into jobs. What about, I mean, you, you're at a very prestigious, I'm going to add, this is kind of more of a personal question, very prestigious university, obviously. So what was your experience? In, yeah, so I actually yeah. talk about that in the, in the book. Uh, part okay. of how I learned about this job in the first place actually had to do with me activating my own networks. Uh, my father is mostly retired now, but he was a college professor for a long time. And he actually knew someone here at the university. He reached out to them when I started getting interested in the job. And that person was the one who forwarded my curriculum vita onto the search committee chair and said, hey, you might want to take a look at her. She seems interested in the position. So I certainly, in my own experience, have been a person who has seen firsthand how these social networks operate uh, in terms of getting access to jobs. Again, where I think the challenge is, is that for many black workers, often they're not second generation academics. They may not necessarily even be second generation professionals and their networks don't necessarily operate in the same way to give them access and information about potential positions that may be opening up. Well, we've been talking about access to jobs, but I think I said this in the intro um, that, yeah, once let's say you do have access to the job and you get the job, but then if, you, if you're a black worker, you tend to stagnate in the job because what happens? You know, you don't get to the next position, the higher level jobs. Why? Right. And so this is where, when I talk about the gray areas, where I focus on organizational culture, because this is where we see uh, ways that organizations' implicit norms and values and expectations usually are not constructed with black workers in mind. And so organizations often have implicit ideas about how things should operate or how things should function, but usually those don't take into consideration that black workers are likely to experience racial discrimination inside and outside of the workplace. So I'll give you an example from the book. I spoke with a doctor named who I call Max in the book, and he's an emergency medicine doctor. And you would think someone who is a physician is kind of living the dream, right? They've got this prestigious job and they command a lot of status. And in the healthcare structure, the doctor is the person who says what goes and they are able to make things happen. And they are very much at the top of the status heap. 
But Max found that despite the accolades and credentials he had, there were still white patients who would say to his face, I'm not going to let you treat me. Uh, I'll wait for a white doctor, even if it means waiting for six or seven hours for someone else to come on staff. And I'll sue you if you don't get me a white doctor. That's not something that organizational culture necessarily addresses, but it certainly made it more difficult for Max to do his job effectively and well, when despite his years of training and skill, patients would and did say to his face that they wouldn't allow him to treat them. But an organizational culture that doesn't acknowledge and recognize that isn't one that's suited for really addressing the challenges that black workers encounter. And there was this, and I can't remember the title of the book. He's a, a black physician, Yale graduate, Yale Medical School, all the creds. I think he was mm-hmm. a, a doctor at UNC. And experience mm-hmm. black just man with in the your, white coat, I think, is the one you're thinking of. I th- was that the one I'm referring to? And I, I, uh, I think it was so. a fascinating book. Yeah, because he's talking about not only did he get that the um, the sort of the he he was looked at by white patients as you know I don't want you to treat me, but even some of his black patients would say, well now you're giving me mm-hmm. a black doctor, so you're not giving me the best doctor. I want a white doctor, and that was one of his. Mm-hmm. I, I remember you know from the book that was one of his biggest surprises. So um, yeah, I kind of just. Throwing that in, but uh, yeah, so, right, yeah, okay. right, yeah, and I think those again, those type racial challenges are par for the course for black workers. They are commonplace, they are routine, they happen pretty regularly. But when companies aren't prepared to face that reality and they don't have in place steps and mechanisms to acknowledge that that's what black workers are dealing with and that that may have implications for their ability to meet productivity goals or targets or what have you, then again, companies aren't really reflecting the realities that their employees are navigating. Okay, so they have to get over the denial and, and stop saying, okay, well, we hire, we, you know, we have, we hire the black workers and Asian workers and white workers and women, but actually, yes, they hired them, but then this, this sort of, a, that's the end of it, right? And then you have the all black workers we're talking about, so they are exposed to all this racism. So then, okay, the steps, how do you get out of it? What do you do? Because, you know, that's what you're talking about in the book. Yeah. Yes. So there's different levels of suggestions, but I would say that for everyday listeners who might be hearing this and thinking, ah, this might be my workplace. How could I do something to address it? I think there are three steps that relate to these areas that I mentioned, to hiring, organizational culture, and advancement. If we're talking about hiring, I really recommend being a reference. I talked with you about how uh, segregated many of our networks are, but it's important for people to develop racially inclusive networks and then to use those to refer Black friends and associates for jobs in their companies. When it comes to organizational culture, I suggest being an advocate. And what that means is speaking up in support of company efforts to promote racial diversity, but also speaking out when others talk negatively about those types of issues and showing through your words and your deeds that you do want to support racial diversity in a company and to draw attention to the ways that black workers might be experiencing challenges. And finally, when it comes to advancement, I would say be a sponsor to make sure that if you're a person in a leadership role in a company or a middle management role in a company, that you are actively seeking out opportunities to mentor and advocate for and sponsor black workers who are also in your place of business. And take that as an opportunity to empower the next generation of black leaders to move into these high-ranking roles. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, empowering the next generation of black leaders, because that's critical, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. and that, yeah, so the next generation. Um, and you are working with the next generation, I'm assuming, if you're at Washington University in St. Louis. So what is happening there besides you? <laughs> <laughs> well, adi- not beside you, place- in addition to you, in addition to you. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, it's a place where we've got a lot of commitments going on in terms of trying to achieve multiple forms of diversity, including racial diversity, but also uh, neurological diversity, gender, sexual identity, uh, a number of different fronts. And there are a lot of efforts underway to make sure that it's a place that's as inclusive as possible to as many students and faculty as possible. So, okay, now, who's doing the work? You've been talking about what needs to be done. I'm talking about the university. But can you, I mean, are there people at other universities who are doing the work that you're talking about and who are really talking about these gray areas so that you can get young people in, you know, young black, young people uh, to be able to do exactly what you're saying to break down these racial barriers? Yeah, I think from a research standpoint, I have a lot of, uh, fortunately, I'm fortunate to have a lot of colleagues who are doing work in these similar areas that focus on racial inequality in workplaces. So there is a pretty good amount of research and data that does point to some strategies and steps that we can take uh, in companies, uh, in other settings, to try to make sure that the organizations that we have are more welcoming to and attuned to uh, black workers and black people in various sectors of society. I've got colleagues who are doing work on uh, what this means in the workplace in particular, finding that things like mentoring programs for all and uh, diversifying recruitment are strategies that companies can take to try to bring in more black workers. And that those are strategies that actually work. So there's a pretty good amount of research out there now, I think, that is identifying not only these issues, but pointing to solutions, too. So you interviewed more than uh, as uh, 200 black subjects across all different professions. You mentioned a couple of the examples. Give us a few more examples. because Sure. So over the course of my career, yes, I've spoken with almost 200 workers in a variety of different sectors. But when it comes to gray areas, I mentioned Max already. Uh, one of the other stories that I like to highlight that I find really interesting is uh, Brian, who is actually a film producer, who had the experience of getting into the film industry. Again, his networks and connections were really critical. He was able to rely on the uh, relationship that he had with someone else in the industry who hired him for a position. But he also was hired at the time when the film industry was dealing with the Oscar So White controversy, the recurring experience where no black actors were nominated for any of the uh, black, uh, any of the best actor or actress categories for several years running back in the, uh, I think, 2015 and 2016. So I include his story because he highlights how much external pressure on companies can matter in terms of getting organizations to think more specifically and deeply about these issues of diversity. But then he also highlights some of the limitations of organizational pressure, because even with that external push to be more attuned to issues of diversity, what he found when he got into the company was that their focus on diversity was often masked by what I refer to as this market-based culture, where they focused more on idea, pre-existing ideas they had about which films would and would not uh, make, make money, basically. And those pre-existing ideas weren't always grounded in facts, but they did serve to disadvantage black workers. So there's his story. Um, I mentioned Max before. There's Constance, who's a black woman professor in the STEM field, who faces a lot of challenges being a black woman in a very isolating environment. And there are others, too, as an effort to try to get to a range of professions and show how these changes are present, how these issues are present across a number of different fields. So, in other words, you are pointing out how these old models of work are really outdated and detrimental. And we have to take a look at it, or companies have to take a look, or in all, and other all professions, I guess, right? And accept that 
At first, you have to accept that, right? Yeah, I, I think people want to hang on to those. Yeah. Old, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's a key point. Yeah, that we can't afford to be regressive when it comes to how we think about companies and diversity. And I think often many companies have this model of saying that they focus on, saying that they value diversity and then making an effort maybe to hire a handful of people here and there and saying, okay, I've done the job. Let's pat ourselves on the back. But that's the model that's been in place for some time, but that's not a model that really brings black workers into companies in numbers that are commensurate with their presence in the population. And I think that needs to be where we start to look for changes to happen. I think one of the difficulties is it's always been sort of uh, a taboo, I guess, to discuss race and racism. People are afraid, you know, they tiptoe around. They don't want to mm-hmm. say anything. They don't want to discuss it. They're going to say or do the wrong thing or they're concerned about their own job or uh, yeah, talk to us about that, because I think that is an issue. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. That definitely is a factor. And I've talked with respondents who have described uh, being in workplaces where that's been very much the culture. The challenge with that, though, is that when we have these workplaces where there's a culture that discourages acknowledging or talking openly or at least addressing the reality of racial inequality, then there's also the lack of a framework that allows companies to address the issues that black workers are facing, right? For black workers, these issues of race and inequality aren't things that they shed when they walk through the front door of the corporation. These aren't things that just disappear once they happen to sit down at their desks. These are things that they bring into the workplace because these are issues that occur for them in many cases at the workplace. And so when companies aren't prepared to acknowledge that reality, then they really do black workers a disservice. And I talk about this in the book with Constance, uh, the person I just mentioned who's a black woman STEM professor who worked in an environment where the commitment on paper and the university's commitment stated at least was that they were very much in support of diversity. It was a value. It was something that mattered to them. But when it came into practice, that didn't extend to a commitment to racial diversity. And so that meant that for Constance, the challenges that she faced in terms of explicitly racist teaching evaluations and colleagues who were pretty cold to her and often excluded her and difficulties finding people who would mentor her, there was no way for her colleagues to talk about how those were shaped by race. And so she was just left to deal with it on her own. And what about middle managers? Uh, how, how do they come into, to, you know, do they come into play in all of this uh, in companies and corporations uh, in terms of their mm-hmm. attitude? Yeah. And how they handle racism and race in their companies? Yeah, so middle managers can, I think, particularly when they are thinking about which types of workers they want to champion and support for potentially moving into leadership roles. And that is an area where, again, we see that gray areas are present because how we move into leadership is often very uh, unclear. In many companies, it's very opaque. It's often not transparent and explicitly defined. And a lot of it has to do with people's relationships to uh, sponsors sponsors and mentors. But uh, for middle managers, we know that uh, having that discretion to form these relationships organically with people that they see as successors and people that they want to support for moving into leadership roles often means, again, that it's pretty easy for black workers to go overlooked. And so that's another area where uh, more formalized programming can actually be really beneficial to black workers because it puts them into contact with people who otherwise might not necessarily know about their skills and talents. Adia, what about CEOs? How many black CEOs do we have? I mean, I don't know if you have this statistic or not, but you've done so much research, obviously. How many black CEOs do we have in our, of the big companies, let's say, uh, in, in the United States? 
many? Oh, that's such a depressing number. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because if well, we're talking about uh, black CEOs at Fortune 500 companies, yeah. then we are talking about uh, about th- I think so. I'll say this: I believe at last count, when the book went to press, we had maybe four or five out of yeah. Fortune 500 companies, and that was a record at the time. Black people are 13% of the U.S. population. So for only five (laughs) workers, for about 1% of the Fortune 500 to be represented by black CEOs is dismal. It's a really disappointing statistic and a really jarring number that just highlights how gross and stark these discrepancies really are. Yeah, I mean, four or five. Well, of the four or five, who are they? How did they get there? I mean, do they have different stories or is there similar stories or do you know their stories? I don't know all of their stories, but in many cases, their experiences getting there share some similarities in the sense that they were people who were able to benefit, again, from close relationships with mentors or sponsors and people who were able to aid their climb up the the corporate ladder. Uh, That was really critical for the people that I know about who have moved into those roles. Um, And that type that really underscores, again, a point that I make in the book about how critical and important having that access to those types of relationships is and how important uh, sponsors and mentors are for moving ahead. Yeah. So one could assume that they came from their parents went to college. They were, you know, were in the right circles, blah, blah, you know, had all of those advantages so that they, as you say, so that they were able to uh, take advantages of of, uh, having recommendations and all of those kinds of things. So then, uh, you know, I'm kind of stuck on that four or five. Uh, But uh, what and okay, those are the Fortune 500 companies. What about just uh, not necessarily Fortune 500 companies? Just uh, yeah, yeah, and and it it varies again depending on how we're measuring companies and which ones we're talking about. But what we can say consistently is that across the board in all industries, black workers are very highly underrepresented in these types of leadership positions. And again, that's true of a myriad of fields. Whether we're talking about tech or whether we're talking about finance or government or even my own field in academia, we are far from having a spotless record on this issue. So there aren't really industries that you can look at and see proportional representation when it comes to leadership. Instead, when we look at the patterns of the data across industries and across time, what we see are that black workers face extensive and significant discrimination at the hiring process where they are less likely to be hired. And again, that's when studies are controlling for education, for years of experience, for uh, uh, qualifications and so forth. So even when those things are held constant, black workers still experience more discrimination moving into these jobs. They are more likely to stall out at certain points in these jobs. They are more likely to be disproportionately scrutinized and punished, and they are less likely to advance to high-ranking leadership roles for a variety of reasons. And I talk about all of these in the book because they just were so pronounced and prevalent for many of my respondents. Yeah, I think one of the other things that might be uh, that you also mentioned that once uh, black leaders get into doctors, engineers, executives, et cetera, they can't necessarily rely on their positions uh, to command authority. People don't want to listen to them. And that's another, I'm going to assume that's another another whole, uh, an issue that has, has to be dealt with. Yes, certainly. I mean, that was illustrative of uh, Max, the doctor that I mentioned before, that he could spend, you know, years of his life uh, getting a college degree, getting an MD, doing a residency, doing training, 
working in this highly demanding, very difficult, very skilled job, but despite all that, still see that patients would be very disrespectful of his authority by just saying, no, I'm not going to let you treat me and I'll take legal action unless you find me a white doctor. We only have a couple minutes left. Uh, So I want uh, want to obviously mention the book again, Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It. Adia Harvey Wingfield, PhD. That's who I've been talking to. She's the author of the book. So um, Adia, could you give us uh, websites um, to go to uh, for more information about your what you're doing, your work, and your book? Yeah, sure. So my own website is at the WashU is on the WashU website, um, and people who are interested can find me on social media. I'm at Adia H Wingfield on Twitter, and at Adia Wingfield on Facebook. Great. It was so nice having you on the show again. Really, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, lots yeah, of good information. Here. Yeah, and good luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 